Welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned for my very special guest. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm so glad you're back with me. I have a very special guest with me, someone who really does interviews, and I kind of talked him into doing this, thinking that Matthew Farrell, another author who's been on my show, would be the guest host tonight, but Matthew was um, stranded because of the hurricane that just recently hit and is without power and cell phone. So you have me instead. My guest tonight is best-selling author Victor Mithos. He just recently won the Harper Lee Award, which is probably the most prestigious award you can win for, for legal thrillers and legal books anyway. But let me tell you a little bit about him. I don't know if you know his story. Um, he originally is from Kabul, Afghanistan. He came at the age of nine and wrote his first short story in English at the age of 10. He tells uh, the story about when he was um, age 13, his best friend was interrogated by the police over eight hours and confessed to a crime he didn't commit. He knew from that day on he would become a lawyer. He graduated from law school from the University of Ohio and has sharpened his teeth as a prosecutor for for Salt Lake City before founding what would become the most successful criminal defense firm in Utah. He's also conducted hundreds of trials. Um, One particular case struck him, and it eventually became the basis for his first major bestseller, The Neon Lawyer. It is my honor, and I am so happy to welcome Victor Mithos to the show. Victor, welcome to Authors on the Air. Oh, thank you for having me, Pam. I'm excited. I'm thrilled that you're here, and I, I'm thrilled that that you're breaking your vow of silence and speaking to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just ha- not that interesting. I think you're fascinating. You, you know, <laughs> you've you've written over 50 novels. You've yeah. been nominated for many of the industry awards, like the Edgar, and you just recently won the Harper Lee Prize for legal fiction. Plus, I know that you're a rabid bodybuilder. You work out all the time. You, you've done both prosecutorial and criminal uh, law. And um, you also have worked on behalf of Native American tribes to uh, practice their religion freely. You've sued police departments for civil rights violations. So, And I know that your books are number one selling best hits in not only the United States, but UK, India, Australia, and throughout the world. Um, when you came to, to the United States, I'm assuming with your folks, but maybe I'm wrong, did you know that you wanted to write and be a lawyer? Oh, no, no. We, we came straight from a refugee camp. Um, we fled Afghanistan and went into Pakistan. My family was really involved in the resistance to the Soviet Union uh, when they invaded. And so we, uh, we, we had to flee. My dad was actually in prison for about a year. Um, oh my God. And he, I mean, he, has, he wrote a book about it, but he, he, he was in a prison where they specialized in torture. 
because um, they were trying to find my uncle, who was a political leader opposed to the Soviets. And so he escaped under a laundry truck. The laundry truck came to the prison, and he just basically went under, underneath and held on, and then the laundry truck left, and that's how he escaped prison. And then he met up with us, and we fled to Pakistan. I lived in a refugee camp for about a year, and so I came here. So by, by the time I was nine, I mean, really all I was focused on was survival. And so I didn't I didn't have time really to to read or focus on career or anything I wanted to do at that point. We came here with twenty dollars. And so and so, you know, it was just it was just a matter of getting food, getting enough food and having clothes and someplace to sleep. You know, um, but you wrote your first short story in English at the age of 10. Had you spoken not only your native language, but English before you came here? Uh, no, not, I mean, a little bit. My dad was, uh, I mean, he was basically a linguist. He spoke 12 languages. Um, <gasps> oh my goodness. So How wonderful. I know. <laughs> I know he was amazing. And so I grew up, I, I speak four languages. And so, uh, you know, I grew up with language and linguistics and, and all of that. So I picked up, um, English really fast. I primarily picked it up from Sesame street and Mr. Rogers. And so wow. I think I, yeah, I think I, I learned it way before my parents. I think I picked it up in two or three months and then I have, would have to go to the bank and translate for them, you know, and, and all that. Um, so yeah, I learned really quick and then I turned, I found, I discovered books and discovered writing at about, you know, six or seven months after we came here. My goodness gracious. That's quite a story. Um, from, from really fearing for your life to, ending up going to law school. Now, you told me in the green room that you um, were kind of almost told or assume, people assumed, your family assumed, that you would go to medical school. So yeah. uh, somewhere along the line, you, you said, no, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, my family's primarily made up of doctors, um, just because the Middle East, that's, a, that's, that's the top status profession so I was always pushed to be a medical doctor and then I have this amazing uncle who's a surgeon and you know he was on a tour once in somewhere like um, some some of the farthest reaches of Afghanistan and he gets off the bus and this mother is holding a baby and the baby's covered by a shawl and he goes and checks on her and she pulls back the shawl and the baby's organs are basically outside of its body and oh. so he runs back to the bus he gets he gets his little sewing kit and stuff like that and the tour guide tells him we're leaving. So if you stay to help him, we're leaving you behind. And he said, I'm a doctor. I can't leave. And so he stayed, he sewed up the kid, cleaned as best as he could. And then he walked 200 miles back to a city that he could get back to Kabul from. So I grew up with stories like that about physicians. <laughs> so, so they were always pushing me into that. But at the last minute, I, I just, I just kind of felt like law was for me. I, I, you know, I had that experience that you talked about with my friend. I read To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I could do a lot more good um, in the law than I could in medicine. How many of you came from Kabul? Uh, almost, almost my entire family. My mom's family is from Kandahar. Um, it's mm -hmm. in southern Afghanistan. It actually means Alexander. It was founded by Alexander the Great. Um, and so uh, she's from there, and then my dad is from Kabul. So pretty much my whole family moved moved there, and we came from there. Did you all move to Utah, or did you move someplace first and end up in Utah? No, we, I have relatives all over the place. So, uh, all Do over Europe, really? Australia. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I still have them in Afghanistan. I actually, <laughs> my uncle Mahmoudin is in Afghanistan. He was a really fascinating character. He, uh, when the, uh, communists came and took over, he put on a communist uniform and started quoting Mao and, and, you know, Stalin. And so they let us keep our property there. Um, because he, 
pretended he's a communist. And then when the when the Taliban took over, he grew a beard and started carrying the Quran, and so they let us keep our property. And now he wears a suit and and quotes the Constitution. So the Americans have let us keep our property too. So he kept our property and our family for forty years just doing that. <laughs> well, it seems to me creativity runs in your family. Then no wonder you have a yeah. great imagination. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, um, we're. All your, all the members of your family, especially the kids, w- did you know that you had to get an education? Was this drummed into your head? Oh yeah, yeah. No, my my parents. When we moved, I mean, my dad was a professor of French literature, and my mom was a professor of math. And so, wow. You know, I was destined to be to to, to go to, to to go to college, and so it it never seemed like a choice. It always seemed like something I had to do. I took a year off or two years off after high school and just kind of bummed around. But then eventually I went back and I studied philosophy, which is the most useful of all degrees to get, obviously. <laughs> hey, listen, I know a lot of Europeans and Middle Easterners get philosophy degrees and then go on to law. It is, it just yeah. seems to be the way it is. And yeah. um, I don't, I don't know why that, I don't know what the, the nexus is there, but, but it's pretty interesting. Um, here, it seems like people start off in journalism and end up in law, as my brother did, as I mentioned to you in the green room, mm-hmm. as do a lot of people, and then and then go on to write books or something. So when did you decide during your practice of law – are you still practicing law, by the way? I, I'm still active, but I've retired. I write full-time now. I don't have time for both. I see. I was wondering because mm-hmm. you've got fifth, over 50 novels – um, how long ago did you write your full first full-length story that actually was published? Uh, so I started writing short stories um, for money in college, and this was back mm-hmm. when magazines were still a thing, <laughs> like I right. science fiction and right. and you know science fiction and fantasy magazine. So I did that for some extra money on the side, and then uh, I got probably three or four thousand rejections, honestly, from agents and publishers for my novel. Um, for my novels, like probably my first four or five novels were rejected. And then uh, the Kindle came out in 2009, I think it was. And I was like, well, I'll try this self-publishing thing. And it was just a massive success. And so um, Amazon just basically recruited me from there about seven or eight years ago, um, Amazon Publishing. And so I've been with them ever since. How many – well, and for those of you who don't know, that's Thomas and Mercer. That's um, one of the Amazon imprints that deals with thrillers, mysteries, suspense, and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, uh, how, I'm, I'm gobsmacked here. How many books did you self-publish? Um, oh, man, probably 70. Um, and then I've taken like 30 of them off because they just weren't very good. <laughs> and they're, and they're, they're off brand. I mean, they were science fiction and fantasy. I even tried a couple of romances under a pen name and, and stuff like that. So I just experimented a ton. I can write really fast. And so, um, it was really, it was like the wild west when the Kindle first came out. I mean, yes. you put out a book and it hit the top 100, you know, right away. So it was just sure. an amazing time to be a self-published author. Right. Um, do you like having an imprint now take care of you or do you, did you yeah, like self-publishing? So they're no, a good no, company, I, I, aren't I mean, they? Yeah. yeah. The, Th- Thomas and Mercer is so great. I haven't had a single bad experience there and everybody's just so smart and just, you know, they make, so whenever they give me advice, it always turns out to be right. 
And so I love that. And, it, you know, just working with really smart people is just so important. So um, I really, I don't think I would go to another publisher. I mean, they've been so great to me. I'm trying to think how you could have so many books. You're not that old. I know that I'm a few years older than you. I know I'm a lot older than you. And I'm trying to think you must spend your time doing nothing but writing, but that can't possibly be true. How long does it take you from the idea when it drops in your head to when you write the end? Um, So my self-published, I have a pen name that I write horror under. Um, so mm-hmm. horror books I can finish in usually less than a month. Um, oh my God. The, the legal thrillers and the mysteries that I give to Thomas and Mercer, I take my time with those so they can go from three to six months. Oh my Lord. Well, let's talk. <laughs> I'm just stunned. I'm, I'm stunned. <laughs> let's talk about the, the, a killer's wife, which is the, um, Desert Plains book one. This is the beginning of maybe a series, is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, first of all, your your writing is exceptionally suspenseful. Um, oh, I appreciate that. When I, well, you know, it scared the crap out of me. In other words, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting on the end of my chair the entire time I was reading this book. Um, it. Just from the beginning of the book, and and, and it's interesting to me because I have the book sitting right next to me. So I want to just quote what you use as your, before you even open the book, before chapter one, Mm -hmm. you say, what Mm -hmm. is revealed to us as the conscious mind is no more than a flicker in the flames of the subconscious. Beneath our awareness lies a forest of terrors, of all darkness of nature. In rare individuals, these ghostly drives break free and the monsters climb out of the abyss, which is the from the psychopathy of the subconscious drives by uh, Nicholas, Dr. Nicholas Legrand. Just that scared the heck out of me alone, okay? And then the, <laughs> the, the first chapter is only two pages, which, by the way, I appreciate very much having short chapters because it gives me kind of a break between all the action your books are non-stop there are so many layers and layers of things going on it's it's hard to keep track of everything except that you're very clear with who your characters are so i want to talk about about uh jessica yardley first of all Mm -hmm. is this is the first time we're meeting jessica correct so where did she come from? Where did you develop her character from? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've defended a couple of serial killers as a criminal defense lawyer and they're um, r- really fast. They're, they're, I mean, I, I, I hate to admit this, but the uh, one of them was super charming and funny and, you know, he would crack everybody up and, you know, but underneath he's this monster. And so it really yep. got me fascinated with, with psychology and he was married. And so he ended up going to prison and I was just like, I wonder what his wife is going through. You know, how would that be? She had no idea. And so she's married to this guy for 15 years. She has no idea what he's doing when he goes out at night. Um, So that's really where Yardley came from is how would that impact somebody? Because, you know, I don't know if you're married, Pam, but even when you're married, you know someone, but you don't really know everything about them. You know, there's always things you don't know. 
And so it's, it's, it was just fascinating to me. What if those things you don't know are like the darkest things you can imagine? And so that's where he hardly came from. You know, how would, how would somebody handle that? What would that do to them, to their character to, you know, would they have PTSD and things like that? And so that's really where it spawned from. It's just defending those guys. So I'll give you two interesting pieces of information. I am, I am no longer married. I was mm-hmm. married to someone who tried to murder me. So I get oh, that. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. The second thing is one of my closest friends was married to a serial killer who we mm-hmm. all went to high school with and she never had any idea. He wow. um, was just executed last year in Florida. Yeah. So um, yeah, you, it's a, for me, it, it my survivorhood turned into something really good for me. Um, Cause I was really angry. <laughs> Um, yeah. My friend, it, it took a while for her to grow into her survivorhood. So, yeah. and I'm also a certified victim advocate because of what happened to me. I became an advocate. So I oh, have seen, awesome. yeah. So, um, and, and I love it. It's hard to see what human beings do to each other, but, um, yeah. but um, I, I, I know exactly what you're saying. In yeah. Florida, we had a serial killer named Ted Bundy who um, was really good looking and very charming and everything, but was the most depraved individual ever. So, you know, they, they come to Florida all the time, Victor. I don't understand. Stay away. Yeah. Florida and California. I I know Ted Bundy very well. I almost rented his, because you know, he went to law school at the university of Utah where I went. And so there's this, yeah. Yeah. So we went to this apartment and it was just this creepy – it was half the price of all the other apartments near the law school. So I thought it was my lucky day, right? So I go right. in, and I, I swear to you, I got the creepiest feeling. And I was just like, I can't rent this place. And then down the line, I don't know what made me do it, but I Googled it. And it turned out to be Ted Bundy's apartment. And he killed several women and, like, kept their heads in the freezer there. And, like, so who knows how many people died there. But I swear to you, before I knew that, I had the, just this cold, dark feeling being in there. You did not rent the apartment, I'm assuming. No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> because I can't imagine. I cannot imagine living. I mean, I could imagine there were someone who was a homicide victim, you know, where their place was cleared out or something or, or victim of violent crime, but not where a killer lived. It would just blow me yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's that's a good jump off point. So you you read about these things, um, these serial killers. Do you, you know, with the, as fast as you write your books, do you feel like you need to do a lot of research? Uh-huh. I mean, you have firsthand experience. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't need to do a ton of research. And frankly, I, I don't like a lot of research for books. I feel like the best novels come from our unconscious. I mean, just deeply buried in there. And so, you know, Jack Kerouac, for example, wrote really fast because he wanted to tap that. And if you read his right. books, you can kind of see that. You can kind yes. of see that. And so I, I think I try to get those universal themes in my book. And the best way I can do that is by just tapping, tapping that rather than reading some nonfiction book and then putting you know, some details in there. Because I, I don't know if you have, but I've read these books where the authors do just you know, six, seven months of research. And so half the book is just these facts that they think About the research, are interesting. Yes. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. I, I, I hate that. So I, I really don't like that because fiction is about the story. There's really only one story we tell each other, and that's what we're looking for in the novel. So, no, I don't do a ton of research. I do keep up on serial killer psychology. Um, there's actually a, a revolutionary professor out of Rutgers 
that is that is changing the field entirely. Everything we kind of knew about serial killer psychology is being thrown out the window. Um, so I'm really? really keeping up with him and reading some of his papers. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. What do what um, do we know now that we didn't know before? So he argues that it's neither. His name's Professor Athens. He argues that it's neither genetics nor environment. He says it's a process that he calls violentization. And he goes through how this process forms a violent personality. And he has a really interesting background. He had an extraordinarily violent father and he noticed himself getting violent. And he's like, why am I getting violent? He's like, why, why is this rubbing off on me? And he began, you know, a really in-depth search and he ended up getting his PhD and, and, and did all this research interviewing all, you know, just thousands of violent criminals and so he came up with this process, and what's interesting about it is that it doesn't matter what social status you are, what race you are, you know, what country you grow in. If you go through this process, it results in this, you know, this outcome. And I think that just it just explains serial killing so well, why it cuts across all socio socioeconomic ranges. So my friend, whose whose ex husband was a serial killer, um. When she recounts the story, it's really interesting to look, listen to her. Um, at one point, he was riding a motorcycle in an empty parking lot, and mm-hmm. he fell without a helmet. And oh. she surmises that he had traumatic brain injury because after that, she noticed very subtle changes until he became violent. And I knew him. I went to mm-hmm. junior high school with him. You know, He was always very shy, very quiet, very passive and all. But he became very aggressive. Um, mm-hmm. He was, became mentally and emotionally abusive and then became physically and sexually abusive. And so she divorced him. Mm-hmm. And he left Miami and came over here to the west coast of Florida where he uh, began picking up random either, uh, you know, prostitutes or women who were alone and um, Mm. was convicted of raping seven women. His undoing was when he picked up a young woman who was so smart, she was 18 or 19 years old, was so smart that she played as his girlfriend. She said, I'll be your girlfriend. Just don't hurt me. Mm -hmm. Don't kill me. And um, managed to somehow retain every ounce of memory that she from from the carpet and the van that he picked her up in where they drove to and everything he ended up letting her go and that woman became a detective in the sexual crimes unit uh, here in southwest florida yeah how's that for a roundabout weird story story. that is great yeah yeah Yeah. that is great yeah true story i I feel bad for the my my heart goes out to prostitutes a lot of times i would take cases for free just because, I mean, people can't believe, I mean, they, they just have no idea what a horrific background is until you talk to some of these street prostitutes. And so right. I felt really bad for them. And, you know, they're really easy targets for serial killers because, number one, they willingly go to secluded places. And two, right. the police, this doesn't apply to every department, but the police don't really investigate these as, as hard as they would if it was, you know, someone from a rich rich side of town, you know, a, a soccer mom. In fact, I've right. read police reports where they list the prostitute as what they call NP, which means non-person. A non-person, and right. Non-person, right. right. Yeah, right. so yeah. It's, just, it's just horrific. I've, I've sat in plenty of, of criminal courts and of courts for injunctions for protection where um, the male will kind of say, 
you know, I don't know. She's always nagging and complaining and whining. I really didn't hit her. I just wanted to go, leave me alone. Let me sleep on the sofa. And the judge would say, yeah, yeah, you stay on the sofa, honey, until, you know, just be a good girl, that type of thing. And it's it's yeah. frustrating as all get out, you know, that to oh, hear yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, well, let's continue on. Um, give us uh, the elevator pitch on on this book because I'm I'm so anxious to hear in your words what a killer's wife meant to you writing it and what story it mm. is you want to tell. It's basically a story of um, how a woman can go on and survive after pretty much the most, the deepest betrayal you can suffer. And right. so I just really wanted to explore that. And, you know, she goes back and visits with her ex-husband, who's the serial murderer. And those right. were probably my favorite scenes to write. You know, what would they say to each other? And I just pictured, what would I say? Uh, you know, what would what would anyone say if you if you were betrayed like this and 14 years later you go back and you get to talk and, and go through everything again? And so those were really, really entertaining for me to write. But really, I just wanted to explore what kind of trauma would a person go through to do that? Because one of the serial killers, the son of, like I said, was married and he was, you know, his his wife, I, I felt he ended up actually murdering his wife, too. Um, mm. But I felt so much sympathy for her when she found out because um, he was released on bail and then he killed her and then he got arrested again. Um, but I felt so much sympathy for her. And, you know, we talked to her and, and I was just like, I was thinking of ways that maybe, you know, we could help her and the prosecution could help her and we were working on things and then she ended up getting murdered. So that always kind of stuck with me that, you know, how random life can be like that. I will tell you, I, if just from a, when I was still in victim mode, the number one question you always ask a perpetrator is why? Don't you yeah. think? Yeah. Why? And they almost, they almost never know. <laughs> so, you, you don't know. So it's just, I, that yeah. that was the burning I mean, question for me. I wanted to go march my ass down to the jail and bang on the bars and say, why? Why did you do yeah. this? And, you know, there's never an answer that's satisfactory. There's yeah. never an answer yeah. that's going to make it better or make you understand or anything else. So, And I think that people who do interviews with convicted serial killers, I don't believe that they actually get the truth. I don't think they get what's in their head. I don't care what they no. say. They may send no. them, you know, oh, yeah, here's where I buried some more bodies. But I'm not sure that um, – because I don't know that the serial killer knows. Do you think no. that's possible? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no. The the – the, the serial killer that probably has inspired all of my villains is a serial killer from the fifties called the lipstick killer. Um, mm-hmm. I forget his last name is William something, but he wrote on the wall after strang- raping and strangling somebody, he wrote um, for God's sakes, catch me. I can't stop. And so that was really fascinating to me that he knows what he's doing is evil, but he literally can't help himself and he wants the police to catch him, but he also can't turn himself in. So it's this weird wow. schism in their brain. Uh, that just that just occurs, and they yeah, I feel like it's almost uh, you know like on Dexter the TV show he talked about his dark passenger. Um, yeah. There's a lot of serial murderers that talk about a dark voice and hearing things in the night and things like that. Um, a lot of them have uh, sleep paralysis, which is really fascinating. I read a lot about serial murderers' dreams and their sleep patterns. A lot of them dream in black and white; they don't dream in color. And then many of them have been found to have sleep paralysis, which I find really fascinating. Wow. I didn't know that. Um, but I have not made a study of serial killers. I will say that. Um, and not 
you know, I, I'd rather look at pictures of kitty cats. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, me too. Believe me. <laughs> but no, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, okay. You just mentioned Dexter, um, who was written by my friend, Jeff Lindsay, the, the books, the books were far different from the movie, but um, yeah. would Dexter be considered a serial killer under the, that professor's um, uh, thesis? Oh yeah. Yeah, he watched his parents get murdered and he went through a violentization process. The the one thing the one thing I guess he wouldn't wouldn't suffer from is the violentization process is something that goes on through childhood and uh-huh. Dexter was never beaten, you know, his 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 adopted father his father was really compassionate and gentle. So unless it's genetic, um I don't think that would result. In fact, I actually know a kid. My brother is a special ed teacher. I know a kid who went through a similar thing where drug dealers killed his parents. And they forced him to clean up the bodies and clean up blood and all that. And he's a fantastic, well-adjusted, well-adjusted kid. Um, so the process—he has to go through a brutalization process first, and that's how violentization starts. So I don't think Dexter would end up that way now. Are family annihilators considered serial killers? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I don't understand any of it because to me. I don't understand trying to take another life. I mean, I am all for if someone is coming in your door and they have a gun and you're protecting yourself and your family, you should shoot to kill. There's no doubt Mm -hmm. in my mind. I don't understand the need to kill anything else. It's, it's not something that registers in my head. So I don't know, but I almost think they're worse. Yeah, I, I think yeah. they're almost worse, you know, to, to kill it, your family. It, it, there could be four people, eight people, whatever. There have been some very famous family annihilators in our history yeah. that, that scare me. Yeah. So, it's, it's an interesting question of evil. Um, but, you is, know, because uh, there, there was a there was a guy, actually, I remember from a neighborhood a long time ago, but um, old guy kept to himself. He never yes. hurt anybody, but when, when he died, they went into his house, and he had a room full of dolls where he burnt off the genitals and cut up the dolls. And so it's an interesting question. Is he evil? You know what he's imagining when he's doing that, but he never actually hurt anybody. So evil is a fascinating subject. So I wonder if he had control of his evil intentions. You know, that, yeah, that would yeah, be – yeah. yeah, yeah. He found a way to channel it. That would be interesting. So – I want to go back to a killer's wife because this story um, really revolves around this woman who is obviously was at one point married to a serial killer, but he's in prison. And now there are what appear to be a series of copycat copycat crimes. So she's got to go and confront him because she is a prosecutor. And that is the gist of the story. Correct. Yeah. Now, I know that you have another book in the Desert Plains series um, that's coming out in January, if I'm not mistaken, called Crimson mm-hmm. Lake Road. And this is yeah. another Jessica book. So uh, do you have plans to make her a series character for a while? Um, possibly. I, th- I think there's a couple other things I can do with her. I don't like long series. I did write one detective series. It was 11 books. But that was because mm-hmm. the, the detective was really fascinating to me. I think there's a couple other things I can do with Jessica, but um, there's another series I'm starting with a lawyer who is in the second book in Desert Plains that I think 
I really want to explore. He's, he's really fascinating to me. Um, and Crimson Lake Road, by the way, is a real place. It is the creepiest place you can ever visit. It's a, really? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a place in Utah. Um, maybe I won't say the real name, but, but, but it's, it's a place where um, campers and hikers vanish without a trace. I mean, it's it, and it, like a ton of them, like one out of every, you know, nine or ten that go there vanish without a trace. They don't find the backpack. They don't find the supplies. They don't find any bones. And it's just you get this really cre- – I've only been there once, but you get this really creepy um, kind of dark feeling, kind of the same feeling I felt at, you know, Ted Bundy's apartment. Um, sure. But you get it at the, in this entire valley. The entire valley has this dark, heavy feeling to it. So I had to write a book about that, and that's, that's really what Crimson Lake Road is about. Is about. It's the, uh, it sounds like the Bermuda Triangle of the desert. You know, things yeah, go in, yeah. but they don't come out. <laughs> right, um, right. So obviously your books are legal th- thrillers, which begs the question, what do you like to read in your spare time? Uh, I, I mean, I read a ton of science fiction. I read horror. I do, I do read some mysteries and some legal thrillers, but a lot of times it feels like I'm clocking into the office. You know, like watching Law and Order right. is, like, is like my work day. So, so it's hard for me right. to do. But I, I really love um, Stephen King. You know, I read a ton of Stephen King, Thomas Harris. Um, I read a lot of nonfiction as well. My favorite book is it's technically a poem, but my favorite book is the Iliad. So I read a lot of ancient literature as well. Wow, I'm definitely impressed. What kind of fantasy do you like to read? I love Game of Thrones, the the Song of Fire and Ice. So so. The TV show, this is really fascinating to me. I looked at ratings for every episode in Game of Thrones. So the last episode got the worst rating you can get. Everything else was right. above average. And, you know, and right. so I remember after the last episode, which I hated, it just right. disappeared. Like it dominated our culture and one episode made it completely disappear. I don't see anyone doing cosplay at, at you know, Comic-Cons anymore. I don't see anybody talking about it. Nobody's naming their kids after it. So that was a really right. important lesson for me of how important endings are. Yeah, yeah, it was a really, yeah. really important lesson for me to see. Well, Mr. Martin is in deep kimchi after his um, virtual appearance at Con Zealand because he apparently made a lot of really nasty remarks, or let's just say non-PC remarks. He mispronounced pronounced names of winners and was very condescending. So people are not real thrilled to be about George R. R. Martin right now, although I did have a chance to meet him when he was at Thriller Fest and um, he signed um, one of his first books with the original jacket that I had. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm hanging on like forever. If I have an emergency (laughs) or want to buy a mansion, I I may put that on eBay or something. Um, (laughs) What do you like to read in nonfiction, Victor? So my favorite nonfiction writer, other than some of the ancients like Aristotle and um, Mm -hmm. Plato, is uh, a man named Nassim Taleb. He's a statistician, really, um, but he I think he's also a philosopher. He's a student of Karl Popper. So he talks a lot about acting under uncertainty and how the randomness of life and how to take advantage of the randomness. Um, Because he talks he wrote a book called The Black Swan. And, you know, a black swan event is something that is devastating, but in hindsight is predictable. And nobody sees it coming. It's like the 1987 stock market crash is a, is a black right. swan event. 9-11 is a black swan event. So nobody prepares for them. But in hindsight, we can see it coming. And so he talks about how to kind of pattern your life to take advantage of randomness, what he calls anti-fragile. So I read a ton of his stuff. And, you know, I read all his articles that he publishes and all that. I really like him. 
what do you like to do in your spare time? Uh, you know, I, I, I lift weights, um, you know, a lot. Uh, I, I read a ton. I mean, I probably get through 60 or 70 books a year. Um, and so, so that's mostly it. And then I watch a lot of television. Um, I do feel you like, really? Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, like I said, I, I like to tap the unconscious and I got to get that stuff in there first. So I watch a ton of a ton of television. I mean, I watch almost everything. I'll watch anything. I mean, no matter how bad the rating is, I'll turn it on. And I'll watch at least one or two episodes to get a get a feel for it. I feel like there's something to learn in every story. Fascinating. Would you please tell listeners uh, where to find you on the web and in your social media? Uh, yeah, just victormethos.com and just you know Victor Mythos on, on Facebook. Uh, I just friend people. I don't have an author page. I don't like those things, but at Victor Mythos on Twitter. So I'm always posting little little funny things. I don't really promote myself on social media too much. I think that's no, you sometimes don't. annoying when no, I think that's kind of annoying sometimes when an author they post nothing but promotions for their books. Right. Um, you know, because I feel like why would why would somebody follow that? You got to give funny content and interesting content. So I, I do that. <laughs> I don't promote my books very much on social media. Well, listeners, the new book is called A Killer's Wife. It's actually not brand new, but it's the newest release for Victor Mythos. I encourage you to go and buy this book. It is riveting. You will be sitting on the edge of their chair and chewing on your nails by the time you finish this book. Victor, thank you so much for being my guest today. I'm sorry that Matthew wasn't here with us, but he will be back. And um, maybe you'll come back and be a guest host. instead. Maybe you'll interview Matthew. You know, sure, come back sure. on this show. That'll be a turnaround, right? Yeah, I'd like that. That's that's great. Thank you for having me, Pam. Thank you so much for being here. And listeners, thank you for being with me. And thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see y'all later. Bye bye. <laughs>